Very good morning, Amokyo family. This Sunday, beginning this Sunday, all the way to 31st December, with the exception of a few Sundays along the way, we will be embarking on a new sermon series on the Kingdom of God. The Lord laid upon my heart to preach about the Kingdom of God since June, and this was confirmed many times along the way. And one of the key reasons why we must have a fuller understanding of the Kingdom of God is because Luke chapter 4, verse 43 records Jesus as saying, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns also, because this is why I was sent. I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns also, because this is why I was sent. Jesus clearly understood his mission. He was sent to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. Last month, we just had our outreach month. And it's a good reminder that all of us are on a mission with God. And therefore, it's imperative that we understand what the kingdom of God really is all about and why it is such good news. It's an exciting task ahead of us, but it is also tremendous. Therefore, we must pray. Come, let us pray as we begin. Blessed God, we bless your name. And as we, you have taught us to pray in the prayer that Jesus has taught us, yours is the kingdom, the glory, and the power. Father, we ask that you send your Holy Spirit to renew our minds. Importantly, empower us by the power of your Holy Spirit to live as your kingdom people, to bring more of your kingdom into our world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Many of us would instantly recognize this quote is in the classic novel, A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. Except for us Christians, it is not the tale of two cities, but really the saga of two kingdoms. From the Bible's point of view, there are really only two kingdoms at work in our world. And I'm, talk I'm not talking about earthly kingdoms, countries and city-states. If you look at Jesus' ministry, he was never concerned about political power and earthly kingdoms. You can look at John chapter 18, verse 36, for example. Instead, the two kingdoms at work and at war are the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of God obviously is ruled by God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, while the kingdom of this world is ruled by Satan. The kingdom ruled by Satan is also known as the kingdom of darkness, while the kingdom of God is the kingdom of light. While it does feel, for many of us, that the kingdom of darkness is reigning perpetually, the book of Revelation tells us that this dark kingdom is actually short-lived, and one day, only God's glorious kingdom will reign. But you've got to know the history. Satan got to reign over this world when Adam and Eve chose to listen to him and submitted to his authority. They abdicated their godly uh, authority to rule over the earth and handed it over to Satan when they chose to eat of the forbidden fruit. And ever since then, Satan has had authority in our world. In the course of history, God has also chosen many men and women, in particular Israel, to be his kingdom people, to wrestle back control from Satan. But unfortunately, Israel failed. Thankfully, Jesus did not fail. As 100% God, 100% man, Jesus began teaching and showing us what the kingdom of God really is all about. And what is the goal of the kingdom of God? Colossians 1 verse 13 says this, For he has rescued us, 
from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His dear Son. God has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His dear Son. The goal then of the kingdom of God is deliverance, to save us. Recently, I read a book by the great evangelist Reinhard Bonker. In his book, Hell Empty, Heaven Full, he explains that God initiated speaking to Moses from the burning bush because God's very nature is to save and to deliver people, deliver people from slavery. In the book of Exodus, God essentially revealed himself as a deliverer. In Egypt, Israelites had not asked to be delivered. They were content, or at least used to, those years of slavery. Even Moses himself had no stomach for this venture, much less when the people were particularly stubborn, uncooperative, and we knew, and he knows that Pharaoh was anything but willing. But God still chose to deliver because it is his will for his own glory, for his own honor, because it is his very nature to be a deliverer. Even Jesus, what did the angel say when he was named? He shall be called Jesus because he shall deliver, save his people from their sins. Matthew chapter 1 verse 21. And so family, if there's something we must hold on to, we must remember why Jesus came to preach about the good news of the kingdom of God. It is all about setting people free, particularly from spiritual slavery. Yes, freedom in all forms, but in particular, spiritual freedom. The purpose and goal of the kingdom of God is to set people free. Now, the kingdom of God, you must know also, is also known as the kingdom of heaven. And indeed, when you do a simple Google search, kingdom of God versus kingdom of heaven, you will find that the gospel writer Matthew uses the term kingdom of God more frequently, uh, 31 times, and uses the phrase kingdom of God only five times, whereas the gospel writer Luke uses only the phrase kingdom of God and he uses it 32 times. But the reason why I chose kingdom of God is because if you look at the rest of the New Testament, the phrase that is predominantly used is kingdom of God. But for the purposes of this sermon series, we can treat them as synonymous, even though Matthew and Luke do have slightly different understanding nuances of this kingdom of God, we can treat them as synonymous. Because there's so much material to cover, this sermon series will just focus on Luke's understanding of the kingdom of God. Now, if you're taking notes as well, I hope you're still taking notes, huh? even though it's online server service, you still take notes. You might like to note that in this long pulpit series, we will cover three aspects about the kingdom of God. Number one, the ways of the kingdom of God. How does it work? How does the kingdom of God work? Number two, the values of the kingdom of God. What does God really esteem and value in this kingdom? And number three, the people of the kingdom of God. How are we to live as people of the kingdom? Earlier, we've already realized uh, the goal of the kingdom is to deliver people from sin, to set people free. The rest of this pulpit series, all the way until December, will return to these three aspects, the ways of the kingdom of God, the values of the kingdom of God, and the people of the kingdom of God. They will return to these three aspects over and over again. But let me state here at the onset that these three categories are not uh, neatly categorized. And not every sermon will cover all three aspects. Indeed, there is so much to understand and unfold about this kingdom of God that we will uh, take us all the way until the end of the year. 
But we begin today, besides looking at the purposes of the kingdom of God, really is to look at the king of the kingdom of God. You see, without the king, there can be no kingdom, right? Duh, but it's important to remember that without the king, there can be no kingdom. And if we ever forget what the kingdom of God is like, we just need to gaze intently at Jesus, the king of the kingdom. Not only did he set us the example of preaching the kingdom of God, and that's why we must follow him, really his whole life and ministry inaugurates the kingdom of God into our world. Most importantly, without the king, there can be no kingdom. Without him, there can be no deliverance from sin. What else can we say about Jesus? There's so many wonderful things that we can praise God about Jesus. In the interest of time, I just want to highlight how Jesus and the kingdom of God often entails two seemingly opposing truths of value, and we need to hold these seemingly opposing truths in tension. Take, for example, the profound reality that Jesus is both majestic and meek. Revelation 19 verse 16 describes Jesus on his robe, on his tie, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's a majestic title, right? King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And when the Apostle John was caught up in the Spirit and saw Jesus earlier in the book of Revelation, this is what he saw. Someone like the Son of Man dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters, so and so forth. It's a majestic description of who God is, Revelation chapter 1, verses 13 to 18. In fact, Jesus was so glorious and majestic in his splendor that John fell as though he were dead. Further on, in Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, John again had the vision. He saw at the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And he saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open up the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the heaven could open the scroll or even look inside it. And John wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside it. And then one of the elders said to him, Do not weep. See, the Lion of Judah, the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. But just as we expect, you know, to see this majestic lion like Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia, in the next scene, guess what did, G what did John see? In verse 6, John saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain. Instead of a majestic lion, John saw a meek lamb who was slain. See, Jesus is both majestic and meek. Just when he expected to see a majestic lion, John saw a meek lamb. And both are true. And that's when 24 elders sang to Jesus a new song in verses 9 to 10. You, Jesus, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because it's glorious and majestic, right? Because you were slain, the meekness of God. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You see the act of God in delivering people. And then note this, you have made them to be a kingdom 
Interestingly, in Luke chapter 17, verse 21, and we'll cover this in more detail later on, Jesus says the kingdom of God is among you. We are the kingdom of God. Priests to serve God, and they will reign on the earth. And so family, this is our God, our King. Jesus, the majestic Lion of Judah, and also the meek Lamb who was slain. And together with Him, we are called to be His kingdom people, to reign on earth, to push, advance God's reign on earth. I think you see the point I'm trying to make here. Jesus is both majestic and meek. The best way I can try to explain this is through uh, physics. It's the same illustration I use when I try to explain to people how God, Jesus, is both 100% God and 100% man. Logically, we always struggle with this, but I hope this analogy, not analogy, this physical reality will help you understand. You see light, the light that shines, right? If you do physical experiments, you'll see that they exist both as photons, that is, particles, discrete packets of energy. At the same time, it also behaves like a wave. How can something exhibit behavior as a particle and yet behave like a wave? You try throwing a stone as a particle, will it behave like a wave? No. Will the wave behave like a stone? No. But yet, if you do experiments in physics, light behaves in both ways. And so, in a profoundly mysterious and yet true way, Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. 100% majestic and yet 100% meek. Likewise, the kingdom of God is glorious yet invisible. And we, as the people of God, we are in the world but not of the world. Or again, Another profound mystery, as Pastor Melvin likes to remind us, the kingdom of God belongs not to adults, but to children. You see, by the standards of this world, the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. But really, it is the kingdom of God which is the right set up, and Satan which has twisted and distorted everything that is of God. It's just that we have been so used you know, to the ways of this world that we have lost sight of how God's kingdom truly works. Perhaps one good way to get a good glimpse into the kingdom of God is basically to reverse everything we see in our world. If the world says might is right, you can be very sure that God's kingdom is the opposite. It tells us to turn the other cheek. If the world says you must cheat in order to survive, to rise up, you can be very sure that God's kingdom value is about truth and integrity instead. That is why every time the word of God is preached, it really is a clash of two kingdoms. The kingdoms of the world, which we are so used to, and the kingdom of God, which, which the word of God tells us what is the way forward. So the kingdom of God is essentially contrary to everything we know in our world. I hope you see the point that I'm making right now. Our human minds, so used to the way of the world, will never be able to fully comprehend God and the kingdom of God. But thanks be to God, he now gives us His Holy Spirit and also the Word of God to show us that it is possible through spiritual eyes of faith that we understand what the Kingdom of God is about, that we daily crucify our carnal minds and renew our minds by the Word of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now for the rest of this sermon, I just want to focus our gaze upon Jesus, the King of the Kingdom, and what He stands for. Remember, to know Jesus is essentially to know what the kingdom of God is really about. John chapter 1, verse 14 declares, The Word 
became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. In this time and age of increasing relativism, relativism, it is my duty as your pastor to remind you that objective truth matters. Abraham Lincoln was told in the story that he once had this huge dispute with someone. When the stubborn disputer seemed unconvinced, Lincoln said, well, let's see, how many legs does a cow have? Four, of course, came the reply uh, disgustingly, disgustedly. That's right, Abraham Lincoln agreed. Now, suppose you call the cow's tail a leg. How many legs would the cow have? Why, five, of course, came the confident reply. Now, that's where you're wrong, Abraham Lincoln said. Calling a cow's tail doesn't make it a leg. You see, truth is truth. Calling it otherwise doesn't negate the truth. We may think that we are able to fly, but we try jumping out the window, we will definitely experience the truth. But as many of us also know, truth often hurts. Telling the truth is difficult. Hearing the truth is even more difficult. Pretty sure we can all think of instances, you know, where we were told the truth without grace. Maybe it is your boss tells you that your sales figures for this month is horrible. Your presentation is all wrong. Go and redo it. Maybe it's your teacher telling you you are the worst student I've ever taught. Why can't you understand it? Maybe it's your parent. I've already corrected you so many times. Why can't you get it correct? The truth is we didn't get it correct. We did the presentation wrong. Those are true. We're not denying it. But when truth is presented without grace, it's really painful. And because truth can be too painful at times, we generally try to you know, water down truth in the name of grace. In a survey by George Barner in 1991, while an estimated 74% of Americans strongly believe there is only one true God, this an estimated 65% either strongly agree or somewhat agree with the assertion that there is no such thing as absolute truth. How can 74% believe there is only one true God and yet 65% believe there is no such thing as absolute truth? That's really contradictory. But for us, we know the Bible contains the truths of God. Whatever is written in the Word of God is true. Yes, you can try to disprove it, but the last thing the Bible will ever be is a friendly book of good advice, free for you to choose whatever verses you like. No. Instead, the Bible speaks very clearly of hell, for example, and wants us to flee from the wrath to come. You cannot simply acknowledge Jesus as your saviour and deliverer and yet throw out his warnings about hell. You cannot pick and choose what you like. All of the Bible is God's truth. Famous author Randy Alcorn said this, Truth without grace is legalism. Grace without truth is deception. Let me say that again. Truth without grace is legalism. It binds us. Grace without truth is deception. It seems to set us free, but really it is deception. And it is the kingdom of God which thrives on deception. The kingdom, sorry, the kingdom of darkness thrives on deception. 
The kingdom of God, however, is based upon truth. God said truthfully to Adam and Eve, when you eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Satan deceives them by saying, no, you will not surely die. And these two statements are opposed to each other and only one of them will be true. You either die or you do not die from eating of the forbidden fruit. There is no middle ground. This is the nature of truth. To acknowledge everything to be true is simply untrue, untenable. Two men had an argument. To settle the matter, they went to a judge for arbitration. The plaintiff made his case very eloquent, persuasive. When he finished, the judge nodded in approval and said, That's right, that's right. On hearing this, the defendant jumped up and said, Hey, wait a second, judge, you haven't even heard my side of the story. And so he too was very persuasive, very eloquent. When he finished, the judge said, That's right, that's right. When the clerk of the court heard this, he also jumped up and said, Judge, they both can't be right. The judge looked at the clerk of the court and said, That's right, that's right. We laugh because we know that this story is telling us the truth. Not everything can be true. In the same way, we must recognize whatever is taught in the Bible is either true or untrue. The last thing it can ever be is to be equally true with all other religious faiths. Again, I remind us, truth without grace is legalism. But grace without truth is deception. But now I add this, truth with grace is real empowerment. Truth with grace is real empowerment. And Jesus is full of truth and grace. Some months ago, I went to climb a Bukit Timah Hill with Val. Because we hadn't hiked for a long time, I found my legs getting weak along the way. And I stopped uh, to do some stretching. I was doing some of uh, this stretching to pull the, my leg back, you know, just to stretch myself. A gentleman walked past and he said to me, Hey, you're not stretching correctly. You need to keep your thighs as close together as possible for maximum stretching effect. Now, as most of us probably would do, you know, this gentleman could have minded his own business, you know, and just walked by. There would have been grace without truth. But the gentleman didn't do that. He chose to tell me the truth. And he didn't just tell me the truth without grace. He didn't say, you're doing it wrong, and then walk away. <laughs> that would be true, but there's no grace. Instead, he told me how to stretch correctly. You see, truth and grace, when delivered together, is where there is real empowerment for change. And Jesus is like that gentleman I met that day, full of truth and grace. He loves us enough to always correct us when we have sinned, so that we may be set free from sin. We need to recognize that Jesus never condones sin. He tells the Samaritan woman truthfully, you have had five husbands and the one you are now staying with is not your husband. That is true. But he also extends grace. Whoever drinks of this water that I give will never thirst again. On another occasion, a woman was caught in adultery, brought to Jesus by the Pharisees. Jesus says, whoever has no sin is to cast the first stone. And all the Pharisees left one by one because they knew Jesus spoke the truth and the truth is that we have all sinned. Now Jesus himself, in the scenario, was the only one who had no sin and he had every right to cast that stone. But what did he do? 
He said to the woman, Has anyone condemned you? No. Neither then do I condemn you. But listen to this. He tells the woman, Go and sin no more. Jesus is always full of grace and truth. Again, in John chapter 8, verses 23 to 24, Jesus said, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. And Jesus was talking to the, the religious leaders here. I told you that you will die in your sins. See, that's truth. I'm telling you, you will die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am He, you will indeed die in your sins. But here He offers grace. If you believe in me, you will not die in your sins. In other Bible passages, Jesus puts the truth across even more forcefully and warns us repeatedly about hell. In fact, no other biblical figure speaks about hell more than Jesus ever did. And so we have to make a choice here. We either choose to believe Jesus or not. We either choose to see Jesus was telling us the truth with grace, or we say Jesus was not telling us the truth at all. But notice this, Jesus never told us the truth about hell without extending the grace to us to be delivered from it. What about us? What is our response when we hear the truth of God? Will we respond to the grace that is offered to us? Remember the gentleman who corrected me on how I was stretching myself? You know, I could be stubborn. I could have insisted on my own ways. After all, I have been doing stretching like that for years. Or I could humble myself, repent, that is to change my mind, and therefore correct my posture. In the same way, Jesus today confronts us with truth and yet offers to us grace, a way of deliverance, a way of salvation. He offers us the opportunity to be delivered from the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of death, to become citizens of the kingdom of life and the kingdom of light. How? By humbling ourselves, repenting, changing our minds about our past ways, to put behind our ways of sin which is destructive and recognize that faith in Christ Jesus, when we cry out to Jesus for deliverance, He will save us. Now if that is your desire, I'm just going to pause right here to lead us in a short sinner's prayer. If that's your desire to be delivered from hell, from your sins, please join me in this short prayer. Lord Jesus, I recognize that I am a sinner and I am enslaved to sin. Lord, I come to you right now and I call to you that you be my Savior. Deliver me from my sin. Save me from the wrath to come. Lord Jesus, as I come to you, I pray too that, Lord, you send me the Holy Spirit so that I may be empowered by the Holy Spirit to live from henceforth in your righteous ways. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, if you have said that prayer, I encourage you to contact uh, us in the church office as soon as possible so we can follow up with you and guide you in the ways of the kingdom of God more and more. Let me now conclude this sermon. Presently, there are two kingdoms at war. The kingdom of God versus the kingdom of Satan. The kingdom of light versus the kingdom of darkness. 
The kingdom of darkness operates by deceit, deception. And once you have sinned, Satan comes to enslave you and then also to accuse you. It's a trap, really. The kingdom of light, on the other hand, operates by truth and grace. Yes, the light reveals our faults, our sins, our darkness within, and that is painful. But the kingdom of light also extends grace. It says our sins can be forgiven. We can be saved, healed, delivered. We can have righteousness, joy and peace found in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God, yes, it calls for repentance of sin and denial of self at first, but eventually grants us freedom in the Spirit. The kingdom of darkness, on the other hand, promises a lot but leads to the narrow way of death. The kingdom of light says there's only one way through Jesus, but once you enter in, it's freedom in the Spirit. So make no mistake, my friends, while there are two kingdoms at war and at work, only God's kingdom will eventually reign in the end. And I ask and urge you to make your choice, not just today, but every single day, to live as citizens of the kingdom of light. And more than that, once you have tasted of what Jesus and the kingdom of God truly offers, you will never want to return to the land of slavery, to return to the land of deception. The kingdom of God really is the best thing ever. And that is why it's good news, because it truly sets people free in every sense of the word, truly free, especially from sin. And remember, this is the goal and purpose of the kingdom of God, to save, to deliver our world, people from slavery to sin. This king has a king. This kingdom, sorry, has a king. And this kingdom has a reign, as the song says. This kingdom also has people, you and me. We are called to advance God's kingdom here on earth. But we will not advance this kingdom through earthly means, through worldly wisdom. We will not advance this kingdom through force and violence. Instead, we will extend this kingdom to grace and truth. Truth founded upon the word of God, grace that comes through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Church, I hope you are ready. Amokyo family, we are called to pastor the city. Let's pledge ourselves as soldiers to our King, King Jesus, as citizens of the kingdom of God. Come, let us pray. Lord, we thank you. Father, we thank you and we praise you that you have delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of your dear Son, the kingdom of light. Father, we pray you help us to recognize what a privilege it has been for us to be safe. And the Lord, you will also speak to us and convict us that we will not keep this wonderful privilege only to ourselves. Once again, we ask Holy Spirit, empower us to be your kingdom people, to bring your light and deliverance into our dark world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.